0: Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast.
1: Musicians have younger looking brains relative to how old they are chronologically, you know, their age in years. Mm. And this effect is greater in amateur musicians. um, With the theory being that it's harder for amateur musicians to play an instrument, right? It's no longer this sort of automatic process, right? So there's a heart, there's a greater stimulus there. Um, Similar things are seen in people who are bilingual Mm. for life. They have this sort of, uh, uh, protection and, and greater connection and, and volumes in certain areas of the brain that might be associated with cognitive decline. So as you kind of tie all these things together, it really seems like um, the environment that your brain develops in and the amount that you stimulate or challenge it is really the thing that's, that's probably the easiest in, in, to, to modulate in terms of protecting long-term cognitive function.
0: Hello and welcome to the get lean e clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was five, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Tommy Wood. He specializes in studying brain trauma and newborns, and his passion is translating that research into lessons we can all use to help us protect our brains as we age. We discussed beneficial stressors for the brain, how muscle mass relates to brain function, connections between nutrient deficiency and cognitive decline, ways you can challenge your brain, and is one tip to get your brain and body back to what it once was. I really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Tommy Wood. This is an area of interest I've always been interested in, and I think you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to the Get Lean, E Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Dr. Tommy Wood on the show. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, your associate perspective professor, uh, pediatrics, uh, in neuroscience in the university of Washington. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And I guess before we get into, we're going to talk a ton about brain health and optimizing it as we get older, mm. um, perhaps maybe, uh, give the audience a little bit of background on how you got into sort of specializing and studying. I know you study brain trauma in newborns and how, so, sort of what led you down this path.
1: Yeah, sure. So I s- spent more than a decade I guess in education after leaving high school so I did uh, biochemistry mainly as an undergrad then I went to medical school I worked as a doctor for a couple of years before doing my PhD in physiology and neuroscience and like you mentioned that focused mainly on injury or brain injury in newborn babies uh, and there are a couple of different scenarios where that happens very commonly and that's something that we we model in the lab and try and look at ways to to treat that um, but at the same time throughout that entire period I spent a lot of time sort of interested particularly in in performance uh, around athletes myself and then also I coached athletes in a in a number of sports um, primarily rowing when I was at med school and then later on worked um, through various companies with a wide variety of of elite athletes in in different sports and really focusing on overall health uh, but increasingly thinking about how do we uh, maximize the resilience and performance of the brain particularly over a long period of time so I have this view like right from the beginning of life, like what what happens um, early in life, how does that affect brain development and uh, sort of brain resilience uh, performance trajectory, um, as well as then what happens uh, later in life and how can we sort of maximize uh, those things uh, over time. So kind of bringing together those different worlds of early life, uh, brain development, and then also you know, performance metrics, and then longevity, uh, later in life. Uh, those are sort of where my various, uh, interests collide.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Cause I was telling you before we went on, I haven't had like a, a quote unquote brain expert on the show yet. So I, this is actually a topic I've always been intrigued in, uh, probably more in my later life, I think when you're like a, a child or even, you know, like middle-aged or like 15, 16, 17, your, your parents will like force you to go to like piano lessons and, yeah. and, and, um, and do these, you know, these different activities. And then like, I've heard you talk on some podcasts as you get older, like you sort of lose that, right? You mm-hmm. lose that, like, you know, you don't see too many people go for adult lessons, piano lessons. I mean, this is something that I've sort of kept up partly because it's just something different and interesting, but also because I just know that like with the brain, it's like, you know, like you say, if you don't use it, you'll just lose it. Mm. And uh, perhaps maybe connect the dots for people as far as like, you know, you know, your study with newborns and how that can uh, prove to, you know, run true for adults as well, as far as helping to prevent some cognitive decline as we, you know, get older.
1: Sure. So you actually gave me some some like traumatic flashbacks to <laughs> learning the piano when I was a kid. Um, right, and actually, right. what I really hated about learning an instrument was having other people hear me be bad at it, which is the exact reason why people don't learn stuff later in life because mm. like nobody wants to be bad at something. Um, but there's this huge body of data that tells us that essentially cognitive stimulus, both early in life for initial development, Uh, and later cognitive performance, but then also for preventing cognitive decline, cognitive stimulus is probably the single most important and protective thing uh, for the brain. And where some of that comes from is, so the populations that, that I work with, sort of from a more clinical standpoint in research, these are babies who have some kind of brain injury early in life. And what we see is that the injury that you have, that you're treated for in the hospital, um it can have a very different effect later in life depending on the environment you go home to in fact the environment you go home to is probably way more important than what is done with you in the hospital and the drugs that you give and all the other treatments and and things they do to protect your brain and there are different proxies of this so it's often based on socioeconomic uh, status um and so which is a proxy for a whole bunch of things in terms of what they have access to and resources um but you might see things like uh, parents who are more likely to read to their kids. Their kids have better cognitive development outcomes. And obviously there are a lot of things that determine a, a parent's ability and time to be able to you know, read to their, to their kid or have even books to read to their kid. But these things affect trajectory um, early on uh, in life and can be very protective. So even if you had a significant brain injury in uh, sort of first when you were born, if you have a very supportive nurturing environment, Uh, later in life that actually negates almost all of the brain injury that you had earlier in life Um, when we look uh, later um, and sort of people at risk of cognitive decline or dementia uh, two important things stand out so the first is how much education did you get early in life so uh, and again that's a proxy for for many things not everybody gets the opportunity to go to finish high school or finish a college or you know get a graduate uh, degree but the degree to which you get education early in life that sort of is protective later in life so there's that kind of cognitive stimulus aspect but equally if you do things that stimulate um, the brain later in life that protects you against cognitive decline Um, so one example of evidence of that is that the minute you retire your cognitive function decreases rapidly that's the time when adult cognitive function begins to decline and that's because in the modern environment most of our cognitive stimulus comes through our work Um, And they've done this in multiple different populations around the world. And that really sort of like this moment of retirement, you get less cognitive stimulus and then that's associated with cognitive uh, decline. But there are other things, other uh, sort of signals in there, like you mentioned music. So when they've looked at how old uh, somebody's brain looks on an MRI scan, there's a machine learning uh, algorithm called brain age. You just take a picture, you know, an MRI scan of this brain, how old does this brain look? musicians have younger looking brains relative to how old they are chronologically you know their age in years Mm. and this effect is greater in amateur musicians um with the theory being that it's harder for amateur musicians Mm. to play an instrument right it's no longer this sort of automatic process right so there's a heart there's a greater stimulus there um similar things are are seen in people who are bilingual Mm. for life they have this sort of uh, uh, protection and, and greater connection and, and volumes in certain areas of the brain that might be associated with cognitive decline. So as you kind of tie all these things together, it really seems like um, the environment that your brain develops in and the amount that you stimulate or challenge it is really the thing that's, that's probably the easiest in, in, to, to modulate in terms of protecting long-term cognitive function.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about <clears throat> learning an instrument and, and you are right. Like I play it, by myself. I think my dogs listen, you know, I know, I know you have two dogs. My dogs sit there and listen. I don't think they enjoy it very much, but they're like my audience, but I do notice like if I went to get a let, if I go to get a lesson, you know, my performance is not as good as when I'm by Mm -hmm. myself. They're performing by myself in the basement. I actually played at my wedding, uh, which was, uh, like a year and a half ago and talk about, you know, having some nerves there, but either way, um, it, It is, it's interesting that, you know, you talk about learning a language, playing piano or an instrument, are there advantages, like, let's just say there are advantages to doing certain things over others, like, like, just, I say, reading a book or doing a crossword puzzle, like, do they sort of rank in a certain, I guess, fashion as far as helping the
1: brain, um, I guess, uh, grow? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, and it will probably... So in general, I think uh, any adult learning any new skill through a process that requires them to be bad at something and develop over time is going to be great. So like setting the bar super low, I think, is really important because this is something that anybody can do and they can do something that they enjoy and they're probably going to see benefit from it. So that's where I'd start. Um, however, there are some... Things that that are maybe going to be you know sort of like guiding principles so Mm -hmm. in general a, a skill that translates that's useful in some other scenario right so you might think that doing uh like sudoku or some kind of abstract thing like it may not generally translate as well to being out there in the world interacting with other people right uh doesn't mean it's not beneficial but there's there's maybe not as much that translates um there's some uh like there are there are some data on people who memorize huge amounts of data uh and that's associated with with an increase in volume of the hippocampus which is an area of the brain associated with memory and is also uh affected in uh, various dementias and they sort of they become really good at memorizing stuff but maybe at um you know, maybe they become less good at other things because they've just like spent so much time specializing in memorizing. Mm-hmm. So something that kind of is applicable across a broad range of uh, skills is maybe beneficial. So I think music and language, they, they generally translate across a lot of things that, you know, are sort of underpin what it takes to be human. Um, and there's one other area that we haven't talked about, which is movement. Mm. And there's definitely benefit Uh, In terms of like literally anything that requires you to move your body, Mm -hmm. Um, like even resistance training. There are studies that show that resistance training improves cognitive function. However, there's this signal from from the data that um, movement that requires coordination and balance Mm -hmm. is even better. So Mm -hmm. there are multiple studies on dance in older individuals. And dance is better than, say, some uh, resistance training or circuit that's kind of matched for the amount of work that you're doing the additional com- like balance component seems to provide additional benefit just like yoga and other things you could be slacklining skateboarding right anything that requires you to control your body in physical space that seems to provide this additional benefit and again that's going to translate really nicely to other things because particularly as you get older one of the things that's most there before you is falling over right falling yeah. over breaking a hip um and doing coordination type movements not only can they benefit the brain but they're going to be sort of beneficial in terms of protecting these other risks that you have as you get older so um there are some sort of like brain training games so there's brain hq is a is an online brain training platform um that's used in a number of studies because it's sort of easy to quantify and track how people progress over time which is maybe harder with things like language and movement um, but they do have some papers that show that some of what like and because it's like these abstract games you might think well how well does that translate and they have some data that shows that actually it does translate to like real life executive function um and 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 memory and things like that so there is some translation there from some kind of like online abstract learning to the real world and that's really what we want so that kind of allows you to say well you know there are these uh things that we know are going to be beneficial but really you know there's multiple different options there language um, even some certain abstract games, if they're well-designed music movement, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff that, 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 people could do based on what, what they, what they enjoy.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned movement because I do notice I've done like Muay Thai and boxing my whole life. And if I take a break from it for a while, I come back, uh, it's just, there, you know, you got it. There's a lot of co- there's coordination involved mm-hmm. and it, you are, you having, you know, you are using your brain for that. And I never really thought about that. Uh, also, a little bit of balance and coordinate, obviously, in coordination. Um, and then I know you mentioned slacklining. Uh, you know, not many people, especially I'm in the Midwest, just outside Chicago. Not many people under, know what slacklining is here in Chicago. It's I think it's more of like a California West Coast because um, you know you're in Seattle. But slacklining, let me tell you, I've tried it. I remember being in Hawaii doing it, and I did it one time in Israel. And uh, talk about just like focus and. Uh, Maybe explain, I mean, have you done slacklining before?
1: I've, uh, a little bit. I can't profess to be very good at it, which is probably why I should do more of it. I have a, I have a thing called a slack block that I, I keep under my desk, which is kind of like slacklining, like light. And you can okay. kind of stand on it on one foot and it kind of provides that instability. So sort of you have to like focus on your balance. So there are, there are like ways, which, which is kind of a nice uh, thing to, to try. But no, no, that, I think that's, that's great. But again, not essential, right? Because there's still the similar data. It could be yoga, uh, tai chi, right? All these things that, that require some kind of uh, control of, uh, of the body in 3D space. And I think it's because uh, the more you challenge your coordination, right? That's kind of more of a, a threat in a good way right to your to the the brain perceives it right if you are unstable the brain perceives that as as a greater threat and that creates this this um sort of milieu of um neurotransmitters that kind of is associated with plasticity and 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 supporting you know sort of brain growth or at least homeostasis so so i think that's why it's that additional challenges is kind of perceived as uh, by the brain as something that's really important to try and get better at because but like if you're unstable, you know, it's a, again, a threat to falling over or some kind of injury or something like that. So, so again, it's like it kind of creates this uh, environment that, that, that is associated with plasticity.
0: Yeah. And perhaps, some um, touch on muscle mass. I know you mentioned that as how it relates, you know, to brain function, because mm-hmm. we talk a lot about on the show about resistance training. I'm a big fan. I know that's something you've done for, I'm sure plenty of years, uh, maybe what's the research behind that?
1: yeah so that's that's a great question and something that i'm particularly interested in again because uh muscle mass is one of the best predictors of longevity and that's sort of the space that i hang out in a lot is people who want to live longer healthier lives and muscle mass is one of the the best predictors of that and there are a number of ways where it, it could potentially be beneficial one being that it's a it's a big glucose sink so if we think about um insulin resistance, Uh, pre-diabetes blood sugar dysregulation this is one of the the best predictors of of having some kind of uh, cognitive decline or dementia Um, you know unstable blood sugars or high spikes in blood sugars or just having your blood sugars be high all the time and doing exercise both sort of pulls glucose out of the system but it creates this sort of sink for glucose and the more muscle you have and the more you move it the the greater this sink that you have for glucose so it improves uh, blood sugar regulation Um, at the same time when you do uh, resistance type training, uh, particularly yeah. you know, sort of somewhere approaching failure. You get release of these whole bunch of molecules that are associated with, with supporting the brain, so uh, producing things like lactate. Um, there was just a whole new um, uh, a study that that just came out on this new molecule that they found that was increased in in, in intense exercise. That's it's, it's yeah. some um, metabolite of lactate that that is associated with appetite regulation and longevity and this happens every few months, like in some fancy journal, like nature or science, there's, they found a new metabolite that there's that associated with exercise that improves, you know, long-term health and cognitive function. And they, they inject it in mice and they live longer. Um, which basically says that, um, we know we have a, a lot of epidemiological data that says that, um, so like the more muscle mass you have in general, the more brain mass you have, once you adjust for like the size of the skull, because obviously not everybody has the same size skull. Mm-hmm. Um, and muscle mass is a better predictor of cognitive function uh than it, it than fat mass is or visceral fat is of cognitive function so muscle mass really seems to be the critical factor um and then at the same time the things that you might do to increase your muscle mass seem to be associated with a whole bunch of um metabolic processes not all of which we understand yet but all that seem to sort of be tied to either living a longer time or having uh cognitive function for a longer period of time or or both um so there's like multiple different lines of evidence that suggest that having more muscle mass is better um but in but it's not um it's it's not like this linear effect right it's not like you need to get as jacked as you possibly can um there's this there's kind of a a a, a cutoff of a threshold that somewhere around being in the top 33 or 40 percent of the population so if you if you went out and you took a whole bunch of people like you you just want to be in the top third in terms of muscle mass so it's not anything heroic. It's not like you have to be busting out of your shirt sleeves or anything like that. It's literally, you're probably doing some kind of movement, maybe resistance training once or twice a week. That's probably it. That probably puts you in the top third. So it doesn't need to be a huge amount, but the amount that you can get, you know, seems to have uh, really incredible benefits.
0: Wow. yeah. So yeah, that that's a good point to make. Uh, because I, I think some people think that they need some heroic, um, like lifting routine that they uh-huh. do weekly. And I know you were on Brad Kearns and he always talks about these micro workouts. Yeah. And this is something that I've been getting into a little bit more. I mean, I've been lifting for 20 years and then COVID hit, I started doing these smaller workouts, 20, 30 minute workouts. And then I just would increase the volume throughout the week. Cause it was, mm. it was just easier to get it done, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, and I, on that point, I'm actually curious. I love talking about routines. I'm curious, what is your r- routine now when it comes to, um, lifting and just optimizing both, you know, brain health and just, you know, your body.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, from a movement standpoint, I train for 90 minutes to two hours, six days a week. Um, I have a gym at home. Most days I work from home. (laughs) It's very easy for me to do that. And I appreciate that for most people that is not the case. Um, however, if, you know, if I was going to, and so I, I compete, uh, as a, an amateur strong man, that's something that I enjoy doing. Oh, great. If I was only going to work out for, you know, general health benefits, I could probably, you know, winnow that down to 45 minutes, two to three times a week. That would be more than enough, right? Four to six sets per muscle group, um, per week, um, is, you know, and then going to close to momentary muscular failure. That's probably enough, uh, in reality. So, um, what I do is absolutely not what uh, you need to do just from a, a health standpoint um other things i sleep pretty much eight to nine hours every night that's something that sort of gets prioritized around here um uh you know we sort of do you have a sleep routine do you have a sleep routine? <laughs> uh, yes so i mean not nothing too severe but uh you know dimming the lights maybe a couple of hours so we're trying to eat dinner about two or three hours, at least two or three hours before bed, I find mm-hmm. you know it's harder to sleep on a full stomach, and a lot of people find that uh, too is sort of associated with a higher heart rate, higher basal body temperature, which is associated with with poorer quality sleep. In on, on average, not everybody finds that. If you're in a caloric deficit, then actually you probably you may sleep worse than eating something close to bedtime. Maybe may be beneficial for sleep, right? So there's always a there's always a caveat. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, dinner two or three hours away from bedtime, a couple of hours before bed, you know, dimming the lights blue light blocking glasses, um, have like a herbal tea before bed, uh, read a book. Um, so either either a paper book or I have a Kindle that doesn't have any backlighting. Um, so like, you're not sort of exposed to bright lights. Um, and then, you know, dark, cool room definitely helps. I, I like a white noise machine that helps me sleep. Um, so those are, those are a few things. And like the, the main thing being that I know when I'm going to wake up At 6 a.m., the dog's going to want to wake up and go out, right? So if I'm going to then sleep for eight hours, I probably need to spend nine hours in bed. That means I need to be in bed by 9 p.m. So that kind of, when people are trying to figure out how to set up a routine, I usually start with, well, you probably know roughly when you have to wake up, right? If you have some kind of work or something else you're going to have to do and then work back from there. And then, you know, going to go to bed at 9, want to stop eating three hours before then we have dinner at 6 p.m. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I set things up.
0: And, uh, and this sort of leads into my next question regarding like the connection between perhaps nutrient deficiency mm. and cognitive decline. And, um, I know you talked to Dr. Brett Schur a little bit about, uh, like omega threes. And I know there was a study out with that, but what, 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 if any, is there any connection between like nutrients and, and brain health? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah there's a, um, there's a lot. Associated between nutrient deficiencies and brain health, and actually, I mean, I remember. So when I was working on an elderly care ward in London, you know, now we're talking ten years ago. Um, even back then, if somebody came onto the elderly care ward with um, a dementia or cognitive decline, the first thing we do was what we called a dementia screen, mm-hmm. which included uh, studies for iron status, uh, B12, and vitamin D. Right. So even just those basic things, we were testing in an NHS hospital, right, 10 years ago, uh, which kind of tells you that even then people were appreciating nutrient status was really important uh, for cognitive function. So, so again, adequate um, iron status, adequate vitamin vitamin D, and then B vitamins uh, are really important, particularly uh, B12 and folate. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, riboflavin B2, uh, B6, they kind of support that process as well. And there was a nice study um, a randomized controlled trial uh, performed at Oxford, the VitaCog study, which looked at uh, replacing uh, B vitamins in older adults with mild cognitive impairment. And then looking at brain actually, they did like brain scans and cognitive function over time. Mm. And what they saw was that if you could replace these uh, B vitamins, um, and I think where they saw the greatest benefit were in people who had a homocysteine level, which is a, a pretty simple test, which is kind of a a marker of methylation status and all these B vitamins if the homocysteine was above 13 they saw a significant slowing in the rate of decline of cognitive function and brain volume um, it, with these B vitamins in, in a separate kind of sub study they found that they saw more benefit in those who were, had good omega-3 status uh, and this is probably because in order for omega-3s to be incorporated into phospholipids in the brain which is where you really want them right you need all these B vitamins um, so you kind of need at least both, we need all of these things to be functioning to get this sort of optimal benefit. So that's where, you know, in addition to vitamin D, iron, you know, B vitamins, and then omega threes, they kind of all sort of intersect. Uh, and these are things that are usually fairly easy, um, to measure and fairly easy to replace as well if needed.
0: Interesting. So when it comes to diet, uh, what's your stance on that? I mean, I know there's a lot of camps and I don't, I don't know if you're in a certain camp, um, but it sounds like, you know, if you're talking B vitamins, obviously animal
1: protein, I would imagine is probably fairly important. Yes, uh, that's my <laughs> opinion. Uh, particularly as you get, as particularly as you get older, we know that uh, protein requirements increase as you get older, and probably the requirement for uh, nutrients that are rich in animal foods, like long chain omega threes, uh, B vitamins, or bioavailable B vitamins. Right, you can get B12 from plants, but it's not at all bioavailable, they may not even have the same biological function uh, as methylcobalamin or other, or other B12s that you get from animal products. Um, so I I believe that the brain requires uh, these nutrients that largely come from animal products. If you're somebody who doesn't want to eat animal products, whatever reason, that's fine. Um, and the most sensible people that I know in the sort of promoting plant-based diets, they talk about the need to replace some of these nutrients, because they, they appreciate their importance. So it doesn't have to be done from uh, animal foods, it certainly can be done with uh, quality supplementation. And for whatever reason, that, that that's fine as well.
0: Yeah, so the, the, uh, the, um, excuse me, the vitamins you were testing for vitamin B, vitamin D, uh, you hear vitamin D come up all the time, right? <laughs> mm. um, and iron, was that? Was there one more? Am I missing something? Were those the main tests? Oh, yeah. So it was the they, omega-3s,
1: omega-3. vitamin D, iron, and then the Bs in general, uh, B6, B2, uh, B9, which is folate and B12. Uh, but, you know, a homocysteine level will probably get you most of the way. Um, and then there are other ways you can kind of determine. So need for B12 in particular. And again, this is something that we did um, in the hospital. If uh, B12 looked low, you'd do um, something called uh, a test for something called methylmalonic acid, which is elevated uh, when you have a functional deficiency in B12 or a certain type of B12. Mm. Um, so there are other ways to kind of, you can measure uh, the app, the absolute value, uh, of the nutrient, or you can then look at some of these, uh, functional markers as well. So it kind of depends on what you have, what you have access to.
0: I see. And then obviously you told us your training protocol was a six times a week. Uh, how do you, base your eating routine around that and and do you do any fasting or things like that
1: um i don't fast regularly um i think in somebody who's physically active and is eucaloric then additional fasting probably doesn't add much um in terms for health benefits i do have an eating window i basically eat between 9 a.m and 6 p.m so uh, a nine hour eating window and then probably you know 14 to 15 hours um fasted again it mainly helps with sleep for me
0: yeah and you are working out uh in a in a fasted state or are you working out midday after one your first meal
1: yeah so i work out usually after two meals so i have breakfast around nine have some kind of lunch around 12 or one and i'll usually work out between like three and five p.m
0: okay and i'm just curious you do i'm assuming you're how you are you eating low carb or you do do, how do you implement? Like do you, I'm, I'm assuming you prioritize protein or how does that look?
1: Yeah, I definitely prioritize protein the entire time. Uh, the, the rest kind of depends on what mm. phase I'm in, right? So if I'm coming up to a competition and usually I'm well under the weight limit, uh, as in the strongman categories that I compete in. So <laughs> for what, like anything goes, like I eat, I've mean, a high quality diet, but basically a, a mixed diet plenty of carbs uh, uh protein and fat um, and that f- f- facilitates weight gain as well as performance in the gym after a uh, competition then i may try and lean out that's what i'm doing right now so i eat pretty much a high protein low carb diet right now when you're trying to lean out after the yeah. competition yeah
0: got it what 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 weight do you
1: perform at or do
0: you, uh, com- um, so the, com- excuse me compete at yep
1: yeah. yeah so the weight uh the weight limit for the category i'm in uh, is two is usually 231.5 pounds, it's 105 kilos. Um, and I think in my last competition, which was the end of May, I was like 225. I think I weighed in at 228, but I was wearing a, a couple of pieces of clothing, so <laughs> somewhere between 225 and 228.
0: Oh, that's cool. So there's these uh strongman competitions, and they're just, are they. Just, I, I mean, I remember watching them on TV. Are, the, are these just these are natural strongman competitions? This is different than the or are there. It's like natural bodybuilding and then there's bodybuilding, you know? Uh,
1: None of these competitions are tested. So it's very possible that the people I'm, I mean, this is like a small local competition. So, I mean, I'd be surprised if people felt the need to supplement uh, in order to perform against like three other random guys from down the road but you know if they do i don't know if they're doing that but it's 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 certainly within the rules of the competition um but yeah so they have them in they have them in weight classes so when you compete as a novice which i did do up until like next next year i have to compete what they call open uh, but i was as a novice i was a lightweight so under 231 pounds is a lightweight which is nice because there's like there's you're never a lightweight at 230 pounds unless you're in Strongman. Yeah. Um so, so yeah, they they kind of to kind of level the playing field a bit, they have they have these weight categories. Okay. Curious. Yeah, that's cool.
0: Um I'm curious, do you do certain things to challenge your brain? I know you mentioned you have that little uh slack block or what you mentioned. Um, but other than obviously lifting and put on mu- putting on muscle, which obviously mm. is important for the brain, what other things do you do?
1: Yeah, so the main the main thing that I've done recently is um some skill development and i mainly do that through learning to code um oh. it has the the byproduct of being useful for my job um but i've definitely noticed that there's been some benefits there in in other areas i think learning so what you said yeah, yeah learning to code so yeah. and again that's just like learning a language right it's just a different type of uh, type of language um i also uh, i don't get enough opportunities uh, but i try and speak other languages. So I, I, mm. so I have family in Iceland. I was just in Iceland. And the whole time I was there, I tried to force myself to speak Icelandic because I don't do it very often. But I'm increasingly appreciative of, even though I feel uncomfortable because I know like I don't always get the grammar right or I don't always have the like vocabulary that I wish that I had in Icelandic. I know that there's benefits both for keeping it as a language in my head, but then also, you know, because it's an additional challenge. So I try I, I try and be better at making sure that in scenarios where I can speak a language that I, that I, that I know, I, I I take that opportunity.
0: Yeah. It's like, you grow up, you learn another language. I remember learning Spanish. Uh, I've been wanting to get back to, to, to learning it again. I mean, I know some of it, but, uh, I could see how it could be, you know, completely beneficial. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious, um, is there a genetic component when it comes to, you know, dementia and, you know, what can we learn from that?
1: Yes, that's a good question. Um, and almost certainly there's, there's a genetic component. And, and um, one way that the people do that, uh, well, I guess we should probably start with the one that most people may have heard of, which is your apolipoprotein E or ApoE genotype, Apo-E, of which yeah. th- there are three different common polymorphisms, type two, three, and four. And um, compared to twos and threes, those who have at least one copy, those who have one copy of four have a slightly increased risk of um, dementia. And those who have two copies have an even greater risk of dementia. Mm. Um, And so that ApoE is probably the, it probably contributes about 5% of your overall risk of dementia. And so most people who get dementia don't have ApoE and most, and not everybody who has don't, most people who get dementia don't have ApoE4 because it's not that common. Um, and most, and not everybody who has APOE4 gets dementia, right? So it's not deterministic, but it sort of, co- it contributes. Um, however, when you look at this, this seems to be mainly true in westernized populations. Um, and we, so if we look at, there are three studies I can think of, um, uh, the Bolivian Cimene who are a, a hunter-gatherer group, uh, there was a, a study done, uh, i believe in nigeria and then there was also a recent study that came out in um uh, native uh, americans and in those groups in an environment that is more quote-unquote ancestral more like the environment they involve evolved in apoe 4 is not associated with an increased risk of dementia mm-hmm. so it seems to only be the case in people in the modern environment mm-hmm. for whatever reason uh, or at least you know there are cap there are scenarios where it's not detrimental um and in the in the uh, Bolivian hunter-gatherers if they have a high parasite burden which is which is common uh then actually it's protective of cognitive function so, th- so there may be benefits to that depending on the the scenario the environment you live in um you can also do what the, the what they call polygenic risk scores where you basically look at these you know thousands of genes and you look at all your di- different polymorphisms and then you can kind of rank people um on these um you know how likely based on the genetics they are to get dementia. And there is, um, an association there. Absolutely. Um, however, does that change what we might do to try and, uh, prevent cognitive decline? I'm not entirely sure it does. And equally, uh, what, what we're, what we've seen from multiple studies now is that if you tell people about their genetic risk, it doesn't change their behavior, right? So if I tell you you're at increased risk, you're no more likely to then do something about it on average, There are certain subsets of people who are like, now I know I'm going to do something, but that's not most people. Mm. Um, But at the same time, you may get a negative effect. So I tell you, you're increased risk. On average, you won't do anything about it, but you will get stressed about the fact that you're increased risk and that stress will increase your risk even further. Um, So yes, genetics absolutely play a role, but it's not always clear whether it's useful to know your own genetic risk.
0: Interesting. Is there, is there, is there, um, what would you say the biggest correlation that you find? And, you know, maybe there's not an answer to this between cognitive decline and perhaps dementia. Um, Is it lifestyle? Is it, um, you know, diabetic? Are there, is, what's the, what would you say is the biggest sort of correlation between the two?
1: Yes. So. I've done some recent analyses using some population data sets to try and answer this, this question. And because a lot of these things cluster together, right? You know, people who um, uh, are more likely to be diabetic, you know, they may be more likely to be lower socioeconomic status that's associated with worse um, nutrient status or uh, greater exposure to toxins, because like, they, for whatever reason, are exposed to lower quality water, lower quality air, right? Because they're kind of forced to live in a certain area where that's the case. Mm. So all these things kind of interact. Um, but the things that popped out, at least in the analysis that I did were the, um, there were the single most, well, there's two, the two single most, uh, predictive things are age, obviously the older you are, the more likely you are to get dementia. Sure. And the, and the second one is education level, right? So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Once you take those out, because they are the two most important things, um, having high blood pressure was very predictive as was having a high HbA1c so high average blood sugar level uh, and of course those two things are correlated as well because people who have higher uh, higher blood sugar also have higher blood pressure um but they were even after you t- took that into account both of those were associated with worse dementia and we we know that right getting adequate blood flow and nutrients to the brain is really important and that's where the sort of vascular blood pressure thing comes in and then also um you know having good metabolic health where the you know which is where the, the blood sugar thing comes in. So so those are the two things, and again, a modifiable but very common, that seem to be associated with um, with cognitive decline. At least this was in the in the NHANES data set, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which is this sort of standard population data set that's that's uh, in the US.
0: Okay, that I, that seems to make sense. So the biggest correlation would be higher blood pressure. Once you take age and education out of the mix, mm. higher blood pressure uh, and perhaps higher, uh, blood sugar.
1: Yeah. And then also the, the nutrient status stuff we talked about before. Yeah. And the nutrient
0: status. Yeah. Got it. Is that, is that something that you measure for yourself for every six months or a year? Do you, do you do, um, you know, vitamin D and vitamin B tests and things like that? Uh,
1: yeah, I'll do, um, I'll do blood tests usually about every year I'll do, you know, a full blood count there are certain things you can look at with red blood cell metrics that kind of give you an idea of nutrient status and inflammation um then uh it's like a metabolic panel which includes liver tests kidney tests electrolytes uh some b vitamin status stuff including homocysteine which i mentioned earlier then some basic lipids um that will kind of give you a good a good idea of whether there's anything you need to focus on iron status that was another and vitamin d yeah
0: okay and then this just came to my mind because I'm a, I'm a big golfer. Uh, yeah. I know, I know Brad is as well. He does like speed golf. Uh, <laughs> so my question is, and, and I noticed this even with, even just like playing an instrument is how much of the learning is actually when you're not doing it? Like when it's, you, I, I noticed this as an adult, I think as a kid, you don't realize this, but like I'll, I'll, I'll play a, uh, you know, my piano and it's not going great. And then mm-hmm the next day, next morning, I'm like, wow, like I just learned a lot more, uh, and I didn't even do anything. And so yeah. I'm sort of, I have this unconscious, you know, subconscious learning while I'm not even doing it. What, what does that sort of role play in perhaps instruments or even like in sport?
1: So the easiest way that, that I think about it is that we know that in order to adapt to anything, you need a period of rest and recovery, right? So, so we know that any stressor, um, if you, you may come back stronger from it, but you need to be able to recover, right? And this could be cold exposure, heat exposure, fasting, uh, exercise, right? If you did, if you exercise continuously, that's never going to be good for you because you're never going to actually be able to recover and adapt from it. Um, For skill learning, a lot of that consolidation happens during sleep. Um, So part of it is like consolidating that skill during sleep. There's also, um, based on various um, studies, we know that if you think about some skill or process development you can actually enhance uh learning just sort of like imagining going through the steps of it and so there are even studies where they had people do resistance training and then they had people at the same time just imagine imagining that they were lifting right so just thinking about lifting not actually lifting and they just thought about lifting and they got stronger right not quite as strong as people who did the actual lifting but they just they were thinking about this connection right and and they got stronger um so there's that there's that part of it as well so like if, you, if you've been like playing the piano you, you may like be going over these patterns in your head which can sort of like strengthen that connection and consolidate some of that learning um and then equally like the final bit is um you, it, to, in order to sort of like maximally stimulate learning there's only so much you can do at a, t- at a time and you need to be doing it at a difficulty that gets you to like the point of frustration right mm-hmm. so you like get to this point And you're kind of like knocking on the door. Like there's this bit that you can't quite get. this kind of like passage on the piano you can't quite get. And like creating a little bit of frustration there, like I said earlier, that kind of stimulates this environment for learning. Um, However, you're also going to get to a point where like you just keep failing again and again and again. And then you get frustrated and that makes you worse. So there's like all those things kind of come into play. You can probably only like really learn, sort of like really um, sort of like push the boundaries in like maybe Twenty to thirty-minute chunks, and then you just like get to this wall that just becomes frustrating, and you're not going to get anywhere. And then, and then you need to like pull back, rest, recover, consolidate, and then you can go back again.
0: So, would you say like for skill learning? I'm getting, I'm thinking just as for golf, because like for me, I'm always working on like trying to improve certain aspects of my swing, mm. and I I try to just do a little bit every day. Uh, what would be like the most efficient? I know this might seem, but what's the most efficient way maybe to try to gain and improve that skill? Because like, I can feel it and do it maybe without the ball and with even without a club. Uh, but once I go fast speed full on, then I'll see it on camera. Like, Oh, I went back to my old way. And like, how can I gain that skill to the point where I can do it in full speed? And so that's like a, a, a frustration I know with a lot of golfers. I'm just curious your thoughts
1: Yeah, I understand that uh, I think there's maybe two two parts of it. One so one is like the initial skill development, and I think that happens best in these sort of like 20 to 30 minute chunks with like you know where you're just sort of again like pushing the boundaries um, right on the edge of, of your current skill and then and then sort of pulling back and, and, and getting it and maybe you do that you know maybe just once a day. Okay. but then there's also, right? Once you've developed that skill, there's like, there's a repetition muscle memory component of it. Um, And, you know, they say that not practice makes perfect, but practice makes permanent, right? So maybe once you've developed a skill, then actually you have a period of time where you you sort of do that again and again and again to kind of really ingrain it so that when you're under a, a time or cognitive stress, then that's the pattern that you you resort to. So I think there's two components. One is the initial skill learning, and then there's also like the continuous patterning to make it the sort of like the the the, the default.
0: Yeah, because because the thing is, I could I could do it, and I can exaggerate it. I'll try to exaggerate it and do it like really slow. But if you think about golf, golf is you you, you swing it under a second or whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? So it's like, how can I get it so get it to the point where it's slow? And uh, you know, when I'm doing these repetitions and feeling it to the point where I can just it's instinctual and I just swing and it looks that same way.
1: <laughs> so i don't know I don't know much about golf yeah. itself, but I, I wonder about scenarios where I mean if you learn it when it's slow, is, is that actually transferable to the scenario that you actually want to learn it? and I, And I'm not sure it would be like if we're thinking about something like... You know, learning certain lifts in the gym, which I can relate to better. Mm-hmm. Often it needs to be heavy enough for you to actually get the pattern. Because if you don't, if it's not heavy enough, right, you can cheat or use a different technique without suffering. Whereas, you know, then that same movement pattern doesn't translate to when it is actually heavy. Uh, so, so I wonder if there's a, a similar thing, you know, in, in golf where actually learning it slow, may, like maybe you don't actually learn the pattern that you really need when you're doing it fast. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Interesting. It'll it's, it's like the common thing with golfers. So I was just curious your yeah. thoughts on that. Um, well, this is great. I feel like we can, I could talk to you about all this stuff for a long time, but, um, we're coming up on it. I just wanted to ask you one question. I asked all my guests and you, and you might've answered it already is what would you, what advice would you give most of my audience? I'd say is middle-aged 40 mm-hmm. years and older. Um, you know, middle, middle-aged men looking to get their bodies back and their minds back to, to what it once was, maybe in their 20s and 30s. So what, what one tip would you give that individual?
1: Um, well, I think if I had one tip, and it's for brain and body.
0: Yeah, I threw the brain in there.
1: Just yeah. All right. So, so, so if, we, if we're going to include the brain, then, then I think like, do something every day that you're bad at. That you're That's going to be it. my one tip. Because people don't like to do the stuff that they're bad at. And was there like an old Baz Luhrmann song where he said that he said, like, do something every day that, no, he just said do something every day that scares you. Right. Mm. So like, which is kind of similar, right. So do something every day that you're bad at. Um, and then preferably have it be something in the gym because then you get the body aspect as well, but it doesn't have to be, could be learning a language.
0: I like that. And, and when you talk about do something you're bad at, cause you hear people, that are in the gym and i'm like well let's work a little bit on balance and they're like well i'm bad at that well <laughs> exactly
1: yeah they, okay so like when i mean do something you're bad at, i don't mean like really heavy deadlifts right <laughs> that's not the same thing i mean something like you know jump rope or balance or you know something like that that, that would be great yoga yeah. right right that makes sense yeah
0: all right tommy I appreciate you coming on. This was great. Tons of great tips. Uh, where's Where's the best place for people to learn about, you know, your work and your studies and things like that?
1: So most of what I do, it's intermittent, but it probably goes on Instagram. So I'm at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. There'll usually be stuff, you know, often stuff in my stories, but it's usually either pictures of the dogs, pictures of what's happening in the gym. You know, maybe I'll post about a paper I published, uh, which could be really relevant to the stuff we talked about today, or it could be about Like rat models of neonatal brain injury, which is why I spend most of my time doing. So you know, intermittently interesting to to different sets of people. But if you're if you want any of that, then Instagram is the place to find. Instagram. Okay, perfect.
0: Well, thank you again for coming on. I appreciate it and uh, dropping a ton of knowledge on us. So have a great rest of the week, and thanks for coming
1: on. You too. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Get Lean Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine. And I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at bryangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode, feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.